I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners, and I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. Today, I'm happily in the high peaks region of the Catskill Mountains, a few blocks, just a few blocks, let's just say many, many blocks from the Kelly Writers House in Philadelphia, joined here through the quasi-magic of Zoom and our virtual Wexler studio by Jane Robbins-Mize, poet, literary scholar, and experimental publisher in Philadelphia, who grew up by the Oconee River in Athens, Georgia, currently a PhD candidate in English at Penn, studying the intersections of colonialism, industrialism, and the cultural imagination of water in 20th century U.S., who is developing a pamphlet series that invites artists to reimagine urgent ecological research on the Delaware River watershed. And by Davy Niddle, who in 21-22 will be a visiting assistant professor of English at the College of New Jersey and also a postdoctoral fellow with the Princeton Mellon Initiative on Architecture, Urbanism, and the Humanities, whose current book project is titled, entitled The Climate of AIDS, Environmentalism and Loss in Post-Urban Renewal, New York, and whose writing has recently appeared or is forthcoming in Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment, GLQ, a journal of lesbian and gay studies, Women's Studies Quarterly, and Jacket 2, and who, I'm glad to say, has been a longtime friend and fellow citizen at the Kelly Writers House and by Kara Shearer, Director of the AMP Lab and Associate Professor of English in the Faculty of Creative and Critical Studies at the University of British Columbia at Okanagan, who leads the UBC Okanagan branch of the Spoken Web Partnership Grant, who with Deanna Fong of Concordia University pursue research on gender and affective labor in the Vancouver literary community of the 1960s and 70s, a collaboration which has resulted in a recently published piece called Gender, Affective Labor, and Community Building Through Literary Audio Artifacts. And an important big book that I waited for for months and got my hands on and just love, Wanting Everything, The Collected Works of Gladys Hindmarch, published by Talon Books. Karis, such, such, such a pleasure to see you and have you part of this conversation. Thanks, Al. It's really nice to be here. It's good to see you. And Davey, always, always, always great to see you. Hey, Al. And Jane Robbins, you know, the three of you are, could, could there possibly be a poem talk gathering of three interlocutors more whose work is more relevant to the poem that we're about? I can't imagine it. And Jane Robbins, can you tell us, sorry, this is, I'm asking you for an elevator pitch. Tell us in a couple of sentences, what is motivating your work to work with rivers? Why rivers? I guess what sparked my interest in it is noticing how difficult it was for 20th century writers to talk about industrialization as it relates to water and to represent and imagine the changes that were happening in their nearby uh, water bodies. So that's my exploration is to figure out why it's so hard to talk about. Very cool. And I think that um, Daphne, uh, we're about to introduce the poem, but but our poet today um, is so desperately and urgently interested for many years in this very question. So we, uh, the four of us have gathered indeed to talk about a poem by Daphne Marlott called Steveston, B.C. B.C., of course, is British Columbia. This is, in a sense, although not quite exactly, the title poem in a very well-known and much-admired book published originally in 1974. Steveston sits at the mouth of the south arm of the Fraser River. Karis, is it Fraser or Fraser? I think it's Fraser the latter, yes? I believe it's Fraser. Fraser. Yeah. Okay, thanks for correcting me. I wanted to get that right. The Fraser River near Vancouver, British Columbia. In 2001, Ronsdale Press published a new edition of this book, along with a new poem and amazing photographs by Robert Minden. That book is, is one easily accessible source for our poem. Another is 
the magnificent intertitle, the collected earlier poems, 1968, 2008, a book of 560 pages, and it only goes to 2008, of Daphne's poems to that point, including, of course, all of Steveston, uh, published by Talon Books. Uh, poem Talk listeners will note that sometimes we'll talk about a poem by a poet about whom we've already devoted an earlier episode. doesn't happen often, but it happens. This time, we're not only returning to a poet, but we're returning to a poet not long after an episode about her poem arriving, and Karis was there in the room for that uh, in Vancouver, um, and it was, it was quite an amazing uh, discussion, and Daphne herself was part of it. I would say about a year ago in terms of the calendar of releases of poem talks, and that poem arriving was from the poem, the book, Here and There, 1981, and we recorded it that night with Daphne, as I mentioned, and Fred Waugh and Meredith Quatermain in Vancouver during a visit there by the Poem Talk team just before the pandemic of 2020-2021. I'm being ridiculous in saying that you can date that pandemic with an end date at 21, but there it is. So we returned to Daphne's work so relatively soon because the topic of Steveston, the topic that she raised through the consideration of Steveston, seems especially urgent and relevant and timely. Our recording of the poet reading her poem was made specially for this program, so here now is Daphne Marlott performing Steveston, B.C. Steveston, B.C. Steveston, Delta, mouth of the Fraser, where the river empties sandbank after sandbank into a muddy gulf. Steveston, one-time cannery boomtown, salmon capital of the world, fortunes made and lost on the homing instinct of salmon. Steveston, home to 2,000 Canadian-Japanese slaves of the company, stripped of all their belongings, sent to camps in the interior away from the sea, wartime who gradually drift back in the 40s, few who even buy back their old homes at inflated prices, now owning modern ranch style, etc., and their wives working the cannery have seniority now located. Steveston, hometown still for some, a story of belonging, or is it continuing? lost over and over. Steveston divided into lots with an ox barbecue sold the lot, but only bit by bit Steveston belongs to its temporal landowners and those who, Packers and Nelson Brothers, Canadian fish, hold chunks of the waterfront like gaps, teeth of private territory, use at your own risk, but the shark with his teeth dear, speculates, brooding on housing developments, whose sidewalks pave over the dike, whose street lamps obliterate the shadow bowl of night on Lompoy's field, west and south, as the geese fly past the old Steve's place and on to dark, to wherever fish come from, circling back in to their source. We obscure it with what we pour on these waters, fuel, paint, fill, the feeding line linking us to Japan and back wherever, cargo ships, freighters, steam up river and only the backwaters house these small boats whose owners, displaced and now relocated as fishermen can be, fishing up nets full of shadow food for the canneries to pack, Blip, blip, sonar, and even these underwater migrations visible now as roots, roots, the river roots out from under, braille net. They lift these fishes with, reading a river gulf, or visibly. How it pours this river, right over the top of the rock dam into cannery channel, swirling fresh at on and right on past the sedge that roots sediment. Witness these gap-tooth monument pilings, pile stumps of ghostly canneries settle into obscurity, a map necessary, or key to the old locations. Locating thus, where are we? Shipwreck, a rusty wheel, a drum, inarticulate emblems of this life craft that runs, that continues, this busy work of upkeep, 
without us, wheeling its river bank into sun, into the blind anonymity of sea light, the open, sun, a sea men sink their lives into, continue dazzlingly undeciphered, unread days, dazed with a simple continuance of water pour, of wind, of small stores turning their annual credit ledgers debit, silent as winter falls, falls, pours. This is the story of a town. These are the people whose history locates inside of dream, inside of in situ, down by the river bank, a torrent pouring past its sloughs and back channels, boat basins, time repeats. This one was Phoenix, this one Atlas, or leaving Hong Wong Wo's obliterated letters, even whole names along with bits of crockery, water washes, dead dogs, web caught up under the shadows of these buildings, men would cast like nets of retrieval, only to cast their names across the line that water washes away, incessant, swollen by reaches of the sea our lives respond to, irresistibly drawn, these precarious floats. Boats equipped with the latest machinery, radar, sonic scan, drifting, limbs extended, sometimes logs and deadheads, sometimes creatures of motive that swim against the source, but always continuing to return. Always these lovely and perilous bodies, drifting and spawn, swarm on out to sea. Wow, there's so much we can say and are going to say about this poem, and I'm sure we're going to get into the textual details. So let's start with a whip around, a lightning round. So each of us is just going to toss out as a phrase a big topic, and they're all interlocking, but a big topic. So, uh, Karis, toss one out first. Yeah, um, one of the things that just strikes me about this poem is the uh, the layers, and we get that in the very beginning of the poem, Steveston, 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 right, that anaphora at the beginning um layers of history and ecology good jane jane robbins i think i'll build on on karis and say included in that building an ecology or describing an ecology that includes the waste of industrialization uh, and industrial transformation great i know we're going to get back to that davy and to, to build on both uh, Karis, what you were saying, and Jane Robbins, what you were saying, something that really strikes me, especially about the beginning of this poem, is how relentless it is in its approaches. So it's really asking the question, how do you tell the story of a place? And that's a question of the history of colonization, of subsequent forms of displacement, of labor history, of Jane Robbins, as you were saying, industrial history, environmental history, uh, planning history. And like something that's amazing to me is the way that this poem is just reaching um, across ways of thinking about a place to try to think about how they may be knit together by the poem. Mm. And I'll f toss a fourth one in and then we can pick one of those and get going on it. Um, the idea of source, the idea of the instinct to go return to a source, um, the idea of going against a source and having a pure motive to return uh, in spite of all the human historical flow, there is a circularity that goes against that and is the thing she ends with. Okay. Karis, pick any one of those four and we'll start there. What do you think? Sure. Um, I think the, the question of industry, like the industrial is the second Stevenson that she mentions and it's layered on top of the sort of natural world of the Delta, the mouth of the Fraser, the river, but you have immediately this one-time cannery boomtown, which, um, you know, drawn throughout the poem, we have the detritus of that industrial operation and, and it's kind of dis the um, disappearance of it. So Jane Robbins, there's, you know, four or five references to this topic. I would love for you to just pick, talk about all four and then pick one that you particularly like. I take it by your opening comment, Jane Robbins, that you would like the humanists' understanding of ecological situation to include the detritus and not to leave it aside and not to be so pure, that's the wrong word, to ha widen our focus to include the industrialization. Am I right about that? And take us to some passages that work this topic. 
Yeah, you're definitely right about that. And I might take us to the final stanza uh, where I'm fascinated by or compelled by the use of commas that kind of create a chain of fragments and fragments that might feel like waste or things lost or things forgotten that by the end of the stanza we're we're drawn back to, uh, as you were pointing out, Al, with regards to um, the motive to return to a source. So including in that source the dead dogs, the obliterated letters, uh, the lines washed away. Davey, you want to take it from there? Yeah, something that I love about that moment is that it's doing something that this poem does so well, which is thinking about how the detritus of industrial history is both the material of the history of a place and what obscures the material of the history of a place. So that list, Jane Robbins, that you were just reading in dialogue with uh, a stanza toward the the bottom of the first page, uh, we obscure it with what we pour on these waters, fuel, paint, fill, the feeding line linking us to Japan and back. And so it helps me think, thinking about that list of commas helps me think about the material that appears in this poem as both what does it mean to accrue the history of waste as the his- the history of Steveston, but also to think about the accrual of waste as obfuscating a kind of care, you're using the word layered at the beginning, a kind of set of layered histories that even as we catalog these things, we know that something is missing and thinking about like what that missing thing is. Karis, let's go back to layers then. The poem begins with what seem to be four definitions of what Steveston is. And that's sort of what you were referring to in your first comment. Um, you know, one of them is what might be called the natural definition, you know, Steveston as it was at the mouth. And then there's, of course, the boomtown. And then there's the essentially slaves of the company. And then the fourth one is very poetic. You know, how, what does it mean to be still hometown and what does hometown mean? So tell us how that works. Why, sh- why do you think she puts those definition like things at the beginning and how that sets us up for the layering that you describe? Yeah. I mean, I think that final, you, you described it as poetic, Steveson hometown still for some, a story of belonging, or is it continuing lost over and over? Um, I think is is a really kind of beautiful way of getting at that question of belonging that um, she's alluded to earlier. And David, you talked about forced displacement of Japanese Canadians, which is again throughout this poem. Um, and I think really at the heart of the poem and um, you know, there's a, there's a long history in Canada of anti-Asian um, racism and the 2000, home of 2000 Japanese Canadians who are displaced to the interior is one piece of that larger history and it has connected to the labor history as well. Um, and so it seems to me almost that that final layer is a layer of questioning of hometown for some, um, but what does it mean to be, what does it mean to be a hometown after all of these previous layers um, with, that, with that return? Karis, can you add as a kind of footnote, um, what was the alleged motive for the relocation into the interior of Japanese Canadians once they, I guess we could say, were no longer needed in the boomtown canneries? Sure. Um, It happened in the 1940s, in the early 40s, during World War II, um, when Canada perceived uh, uh, people of Japanese origin to be enemy aliens. and used uh, that rationale to dispossess them of their houses, boats, um, as Marlatt alludes to here, and move them to the interior of BC, um, supposedly under the guise of uh, national safety. And what did that do to the economics of the canneries? It must have devastated them. I, yes, I would think that was part of the, the, one of the kind of major points in the decline of the canneries in Stevenson. So World War II era ideological racism and poli- national politics went against the economic interests of the previous generation of cannery work. Um, Davy, Jane Robbins, can we go from there? What do you think about these definitions? Um, my guess is that both of you work hard to collapse definitions or to see the interoperabil- interoperability of all of them. We know Daphne feels that way too. 
So, Davy, first, would you respond to this set of definitions? The first one is particularly of interest to me. It looks like almost a standard, natural, brief explanation. Totally. And it's like, it's something that's interesting to me about that first definition is that something that I notice about this poem is that it's inviting me as a reader to have both a kind of ecological attention to think about a built environment as uh, its built state being temporary. So thinking about Steveston, BC as a named uh, colonized place that refers both to a specific built environment, but also to its relation with the other than human and to the ecology of that place. And that tension between the title and that first definition is already um, really present for me. If we're naming this entity, and this seems like a pretty um, simple task. If someone said, oh, like, oh, where are you going? Or like, what what place did you visit? And you said Steveston, Steveston, British Columbia. That's a common parlance that we need in order to be able to identify a place. And already in that first definition, we have Marlott pushing against that saying like, well, what do you mean when you name a place? Where did this term come from? Who picked the name? What histories of violence are in the fact of naming a place? What kinds of invisibility of geology, of ecology, of um, settler colonialism are conveyed in the normalization of naming places? And that's, that's evident for me right from that first definition of let's hold intention, this ecological context and the bizarreness of naming a particular ecology with a set of geopolitical boundaries. That, that tension is there from that first line. So Karis has referred in just the last few minutes to the third and fourth, the fourth with its poetry and the third with its history. Um, and David just talked about the first. So Jane Robbins, this is right up your alley. If one goes back to basics and thinking about what humans do to the environment, such as a delta town, which is what this is, and you think about fortunes not just made, but also lost, taking advantage of something that a fish does and must do and will always do so long as it can swim. That seems, in the simplest way, kind of unfair to the fish. Yeah, absolutely. And exploitative of, of the fish's homing instinct, for sure. And I think one thing that the poem does with this definition in particular as it proceeds from here is begin to conflate the homing instinct of the salmon with the human instinct to be located and to return to a place that they understand as like safe or or home. Yeah. Karis, homing is an important word for Daphne, homing. Because home, can you can you riff a little bit on that? Homing is the instinct. Home is something that we call where we've settled. That doesn't apply to the slaves of the company. It's all all kinds of problematic. Can we can you just muse on that for a second, if you don't mind? Yeah, I mean, Marlott is a poet who's so attentive to questions of uh, intricacies of migration and um, that question of home. And in this case. Um, for Japanese Canadians, that home was always in question in, in Steveston in Canada because of the um, anti-Asian racism that was so rife in Canada since the early, pre prior to the early 20th century. Ostensibly, this was home, but of course, they're also stripped of their belongings um, at, a, at a certain point in, um, in the 40s. Um, and so that home is thrown into question. Um, they are forcibly relocated to internment camps. There's, there's so much in, in Canadian history around uh, the denial of citizenship, for example, to Japanese Canadians, um, the promise of citizenship and yet the denial of it. Um, so I think that it's, it's such a loaded term. In, in the, Karis, in the context of salmon, um, mm. returning home for people, the urge to return home, even if that was already a displacement, is strong. And is she, can, can you help us? What is she saying about the urge of people at, like Salmon to return to something that could be called home, homing? What is she saying? It's complicated, isn't it? I mean, I, on, on the one hand, I see her sort of in some ways naturalizing the idea of home, the, the natural cycle of Salmon to, to return and, and 
making that connection to Japanese Canadians who are again returning to Steveston to home um, and, and naturalizing that in a way that the Canadian government denied that, that um, so-called natural link. I think we can, we can unpack that a little bit more though um, and complicate that. David, you want to try just that? Sure. I mean, the capacity of salmon to engage in what would be instinctual to them is compromised by the fishing industry that seeks to capitalize on their homing instincts. And so I think that like in the way that a kind of uh, metaphor is being used in like a kind of hesitant way, I think in, in like a in a way that is interested in the impulse to think with other than human systems about human life, even as, even as it is doing so, sort of like um, meta-metaphorical in that way, in a way that's perfect for poem talk. Um, but it's also thinking about like, okay, like what, what kinds of human activity make it impossible for salmon to operate in ways that would be instinctual to them? Uh, and in what way is there a relationship between legacies of anti-Asian racism in Canada and forms of environmental degradation. What does it mean to hold uh, political violence and environmental violence uh, as being inextricable from one another? And I think that like, if there's uh, an analogy that we're asked to make, it maybe isn't so much to think about forms of instinctual return in a kind of metaphorical way, but to think about environmental harm and political harm as in the context of Steveston being intertwined. Davey, I'm going to ask a follow-up, if you don't mind. I want, I want to return to the fourth definition, and I'll read it. Uh, Daphne read it first in the recording, and Karis read it, but I'll read it again. Could you just start us off on a close reading of that, because I'm interested in belonging and then the parenthetical, or is it continuing? And there's a question of loss, which, of course, is one of your main topics generally. Steveston, hometown still for some. I guess we want to focus on that still as well. Hometown still for some, a story of belonging, or is it continuing, lost over and over, with no ending, close parenthesis. Davy first, and then Jane Robbins? There's, there's certainly an available reading in which that fourth definition uh, opens, like what fills the ellipses is the rest of the poem as a catalog of losses that have composed Steveston, that what it means to belong is to belong not to not only to a history of presences of to say to say this is my hometown is to um, engage in what environmental psychologists would refer to as place attachment to have like my sense of self is tied up in this place and I think of this as a poem that's kind of like interrogating the violences inherent in place attachment like okay if you're attached to this place what 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 comes with that what's in the like what's in the baggage of place attachment that is part of your belonging to a place and therefore what's lost so that the people for whom it is their hometown, the people lingering in that still, are lingering with histories of violence. What does it mean to bring those histories of violence to the surface and to think about them as histories of loss? And then think about the poem as like a catalog of those losses. Mm. Jane Robbins, I was leading toward asking you to help us further with the close reading, but I think I want to change gears and I'm sorry to throw you a curveball, but I want to pull back way back a thousand or ten thousand feet above the situation and ask you why a humanist should should be focusing on a river a delta a body of water the history of people settling it or taking advantage of its natural beings why should this be something that poets and humanists and artists and humanities scholars be focused on and uh, an adjunct question to that would be you know Marlott published this book, Steveston. It was instantly much admired way back in the 70s. It still seems very urgent. What can be accomplished by what I would call kind of research poetry, the, the kind of poetry that's actually trying to go deep into these interlocking issues? What can be, what can be gained from it? Those are two big questions for you. Well, to answer your first question, why pay attention to water is the answer to that is that water is life and that's something that um, indigenous communities in this continent and beyond teach us and i think something that this poet this poem is interested in reckoning with water providing life and humans reciprocal responsibility to care for water so that's why water 
Um, one thing that I think this poem can do or strives to do is teach us about gaps in human knowledge as it relates to water bodies. Um, I'm struck by this line in the middle of the poem that is indented uh, almost to the middle of the line, wherever fish come from, circling back to their source. This lack of knowledge about the origin of fish is something that and and um, and the ecology of this place is something that that Marlot is meditating on the unknown, what we cannot know about the history and ecology of this place, and also what we choose not to know, um, and also what what the environment um, keeps us from knowing, perhaps intentionally. That was a really great and compelling response to it. Kind of a dorky question that was. Hoping you would do exactly that, and I don't feel bad about asking it dorkily because you really defined a project, right? That that you, these many years later, and Daphne, these many years earlier, has been involved in. Karis, you're very closely connected to the Vancouver scene. Um, the Fraser Delta is up a little north of the city, um, and you know a lot about people's, the poetry community's concern about these topics out there. I just want to invite you to say whatever you want to say so that listeners to Poem Talk will know a little more about the situation uh, as poets grapple with the uh, first industrialization and then the gentrification of Vancouver itself and then questions about the canneries and questions about uh, Japanese Canadians and Chinese Canadians, these are all interlocking. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, rereading this, you know, yet again, I was thinking a lot about um, really the, the po where the poetics of this come, this poem comes from and Daphne's interest in Olsonian poetics and the body and uh, proprioception um, and those, those layers of e ecology and human history, um, settler colonialism, and I was reminded that there's an epigraph at the beginning of this book um, by James Agee, uh, seeking to perceive, uh, perceive it as it stands. Um, and I just was thinking about that as, um, and of course the documentary nature of the poem. Um, and I'm just, I'm, I'm just really struck by the way that Daphne Marlatt of all of the poets, um, George Bowering, uh, Robert Hogue, um, uh, Gladys Hindmarch, uh, who's of course a prose writer, Frank Davy, she's she's I think more than anybody, Marlatt is attentive to um, the that question of settler colonialism and labor, um, and and we're seeing that in the way that she you know she brings her body to the site of Steveson and spent so many um, days I think recording oral histories with workers, um, and working with Robert Minden who was taking photographs at the time. Um, and just that, that poetics of, of place and perception, I think, comes through here so beautifully. Fabulous. Thank you. Davy. what's on your mind? Take us from there. This is, curious what you're saying, and Jane Robbins, what you were saying, is putting me in mind of um, a couple of things that Daphne Marlott herself says in a 2016 interview that maybe we can link to in the episode notes. And, and she's in conversation in that interview with Laura Moss and Jillian Jerome. And uh, a big part of what's happening in that interview is that they're asking um, Daphne Marlott questions about uh, attention and climate change. And uh, it's so interesting to read this 50-ish year old poem now thinking about it as invested in a set of industrial histories that are so resonant with thinking about questions of climate change. And there's a, there's a quotation in that interview in which Marlott says, in dialogue with these questions, the effects of climate change require a huge shift in public consciousness if we are to register the environmental effects of this hugely consumerist culture and the resource extraction industry it requires. And so I think about Daphne Marlott saying, saying this in 2016 in dialogue with what's happening in Steveston as an effort, Jane Robbins, in dialogue exactly with what you were saying, that like the urgency of what poems do is they can shift your attention. And the urgency of doing that especially in this moment, is to 
understand intersecting histories differently and to shake up what feels urgent and how you define it. And that poems are good at staying with things, at being slow. There are portions of this poem, especially in the final stanzas, that are really hard to get through. It's hard to stay attentive to them. It's hard to follow the sentences. It's hard to understand grammatically how parts of the poem press upon other parts of the poem, what modifies what. And the time it takes to figure that out is time that you spend lingering with something you thought you understood. And that's what this poem cares about. This poem is totally invested in a kind of environmental humanities project decades before anyone would have used those terms to describe it. Uh, very cool. I think of what we think of as the origins of human poetry to be some kind of direct relationship with the natural. It's possible to say, giant generalization, I realize it's possible to say that in the last 150 years, so much poetry, especially modernist poetry of the 1920s, was really enamored with the technologies that intermediate between culture, cool, interesting, mod culture, and nature. So someone like William Carlos Williams really celebrates the technologies that, you know, the, 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 the shards of broken glass um, and not the origin sand that the green bottle was made of or anything like that. Not interested in, in that. So artifice becomes a big deal. And we have in this poem the emergence of the blip-blip sonar, which actually disclosed the underwater migrations of the salmon, uh, presumably so that fishing can e be even more efficient uh, in collecting the salmon as they f do their mysterious, original, natural, source-going thing of finding their secret roots up into the Fraser and up beyond so they can do their spawning. Um, and what we have are these underwater migrations that are visible now. Now, poetry has been an act of making such things visible. It's a kind, Poetry itself has been a kind of participant in the extraction right? Interest in the technologies. She's obviously wary of that. I've said something really giant and really probably stupid, but I would love Jane Robbins first, if you don't mind. I'd love to hear some response to that giant generalization about poetry maybe doing a little too much in the last hundred years since modernism with this idea of disclosing everything that is natural and mysterious and secret. Yeah, I wonder if there's something different happening in this poem that is that is less an attempt at total cataloging and more an attempt at like uh, collecting and attempting to collect not just the beautiful things that exist in Steveston, beautiful things and beings that exist in Steveston, but also to collect the detritus of, as we've been saying, of industrialization, also to collect the people who have left and come back, or the people who have, quote unquote, been there, um, and also to to collect what we do not know, what we do not understand um, about the beings who live in the water and about the water in general. So. Yeah, I think that this poem is definitely operating within that that spirit of cataloging, but perhaps with a bit of uh, critical attention to that which is looked over. There's a key pun in that section, Jane Robbins, I'm turning to Karis now, um, on roots and roots. The roots, R-O-U-T-E-S, refers to the migrations that are hard to figure but are but the salmon know, and roots, of course, are river roots, which is partly a pun on what the salmon are doing. They're going back to their roots, and partly about our pretensions to find our roots or go back to our roots and so forth. Karis, you want to do something with that pun, please? Sure. Um, that's, uh, I mean, I think one of the things that it's doing is gesturing, I mean, it's a poem about place, right? And we're, we're grounded, we're rooted in this particular place of Steveston, but there's also a network and one of the next um, uh, line breaks, we have Braille net. Um, and I think there's um, a gesture here to the way in which all of these small cataloged 
um, items are also connected to a much larger global network um, and, and an ecology that is much bigger than Steveston. Um, and so those roots are place specific, but they're also um, a network that's much yeah. larger. And it's a metapoetic moment, of course, because Braille net suggests language and communication. And then there is reading a river gulf. This is an effort to read the river gulf and to read the reading, the extractive reading, to read the reading. Okay, what I'd like to do is go around twice. The first time, pick a word or a phrase that you really want to get into the record, something that struck you. Uh, a little close reading. And the second round will be just final thoughts about the whole thing. Davey, you want to pick a word or a phrase that is compelling? Sure. Um, in the third Steveston definition, uh, the last few, um, the last couple of little phrases, and their wives working the cannery have seniority now located. Um, I find that to be a critical moment. I don't really feel like this is a poem that's like, cool, like now uh, these folks who were violently displaced uh, have been returned and because they um, own their own home, because they've realized this sort of um, normative dream of property ownership are um, detached from histories of violence. And that critical moment right at the beginning, I find really interesting. And it helps me get into thinking about this poem as a feminist poem, which is something that we haven't talked about. And um, something that I, I keep wondering about as we're having this conversation and as I was reading and rereading the poem is this poem being interested in a kind of critique of the way that poems can be extractive, that it's interested in asking the question of what uh, what is it possible to catalog in a way that is really anxious about uh, the terms on which um, white writers and white people have historically cataloged. And I wonder about that being um, in the archive of Marlott's work, a kind of feminist orientation. And it's interesting to have this like one moment of women's labor just like bubbling up to the surface, uh, because I, I think of this as a feminist poem, even though uh, most of the gendered labor we see is men's labor. Fantastic. And, and, and I'm so glad you pointed out that part of the third definition. Karis, would you pick out a word or a phrase? Sure. Um, I guess this comes back to something I, I had said previously, but I, this phrase, we obscure it with what we pour on these waters, fuel, paint, fill the feeding line linking us to Japan and back. Um, and it continues. And I, um, this, I mean, this poem is so focused at moments, right? And these, um, is focusing on particular um, items and that kind of catalogic gesture. And yet everything is connected to um, also to global capitalism, right? And the movement of, of product and, and the sale of product. Um, and I see that um, in the way that it, it's so focused and then it opens up in this huge way, um, you know, gesturing to Japan and back. So Karis refers to this absolutely fabulous stanza which begins we obscure it and i think we would all agree karis that the the first thing we think of in relation to what it is is the source and that's pretty powerful stuff could it be as is sometimes the case in marlott's uh poetry some larger referent davy three answers uh one what we obscure is the actual um a geographic point in the water system from whence the um, salmon began began their their course their migration uh, to uh, wherever is what we obscure not the point but the process of finding out the point that there's a kind of distant like technological distancing we get the sonar a little bit later uh, and uh, wherever is itself a kind of obscuring wherever is over the surface of wherever that specific location is. Um, and um, the other thing that occurs to me is uh, it is um, the history of this place, um, a labor history and environmental history, uh, that it is not only this like um, ecological information about the lives and patterns of salmon, but also uh, all of the human systems that came to mediate their lives gradually over time in the settlement history of Steveston. That's, that's really amazing. In a way, it's saying, um, 
we obscure this whole thing, this whole process that sends, that has the salmon getting back to source and what source could mean to us by pouring onto the, literally making less transparent, less visible, less seeable, by putting all the crap that we have to do, we think we have to do in order to do this extractions canning, and we put it on top, and then we say, oh, 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 we can't track them as they go upstream. So then we invent technology to get past the crap that we put in the way. And so we've created this mess ourselves, and we're just messing it up. And we still claim at the end that we have blip-blip sonar, and now the migration is visible to us. So we made it less visible. So there is no natural, sorry for the word, natural relationship between the human community and the fish because we've obscured it. And now we just find some way to see it again. That was not quite what you said, but it it's it follows. Yes, David. It totally follows, and it um, your rereading of that line uh, makes available uh, another reading of that moment that I missed was that the line isn't wherever salmon come from. The line is wherever fish come from. So there's like an evolutionary reading also of like fish are functionally dinosaurs, and we're talking in this poem about like a hundred years worth of history, but there's also an interest in the poem, starting with the first definition of Stevenson as being ecological, of thinking about like, on the one hand, it's important to center these human histories and to think about these histories of anti-Asian racism and forced displacement. But at the same time, um, those human histories are not the history of this place. And to make the history of this place synonymous with only human history is insufficient. So I think like wherever fish come from is also hinting at that like much, much longer evolutionary history. Lovely. Thank you. Jane Robbins, you're last on picking a word or phrase. Um, kind of related to what you were just speaking about, Al, is this phrase that's been ringing in my head since I read it, which is the penultimate par or penultimate stanza. Um, a sea men sink their lives into, continue dazzlingly undeciphered, unread days. And this feels like another metapoetic moment to me where, wherein Marlat is reflecting on man's um, tendency toward greed, towards obsession, a sea men sink their lives into, which could be read in the negative sense um, as a kind of loss that comes from the obsession with accruing capital, but but also a seamen sink their lives into a kind of could also be read as a kind of fascination or obsession with the beauty and the the power of this of the sea and the um, complexities and and things that are unable to be deciphered. And I feel like this poem is reflecting on both of those things always at the same time. So that's just a line that, I, that I'm really in love with. That's really great. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's very compelling. Okay, final thoughts. We're going all the way around, starting with Karis. Anything that you came to this conversation today, Karis, that you wanted to say that you haven't had a chance to yet? Um, I'm going to say not so much that I came to the uh, conversation with, but actually I'm coming away with. And I think that's this line about um, the sonic scan, the radar, the technology, and, and really fundamentally the body listening. And I, you know, I see or I hear through this poem, Marlat listening um, as she's looking, but she's, she's listening. Um, and uh, yeah, it just, that's, that's my final thought. Jane Robbins, final thought. Yeah, I want to return to the question posed in the fourth definition, um, a story of belonging, or is it continuing? I love this question because it asks us to consider whether Steveston is a place that you inhabit, or is it a time that you inhabit? Is Steveston just a moment? And this poem allows for the and encourages us to notice the shiftiness of place and and the, sh the changing names and definitions and images of a place um, across time, more so than uh, geographically. Nice. Thank you so much. Davey, final thought? 
Something I, I came to this poem with is um, an interesting, so we've been talking a lot about questions of ecological violence, of um, labor and political violence. And um, something else that I really think about with this poem is a documentation of planning historical violence. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular about the stanza that follows the four definitions. Uh, this is um, uh, partway through that stanza. Uh, the couple of phrases brooding on housing developments whose sidewalks pave over the dike, whose street lamps obliterate the shadow bull of night on Lumpoy's field. And we've been asking this question and returning to this question about sort of what does it mean for this poem to be skeptical of comprehensiveness, uh, be skeptical of like not wanting to tell the whole story of something uh, and being nervous about the impulse to be comprehensive, but also wanting to document simultaneously. And we've talked a lot about the history of the canneries and the way that industrial history has shaped both the ecology of what is now referred to as Steveston and the political history. And there are a lot of moments that are thinking about about city planning here, um, that are thinking about uh, changing the built environment to suit a particular set of needs, to normalize a particular set of social relations. We get that um, moment of uh, owning modern ranch style homes. And uh, within the history that this poem documents, it also documents a planning historical and architectural history as part of normalizing a set of violent, both political and ecological realities. And it's like part of the way those realities stick together. And so I've been enjoying thinking about this poem as a kind of commentary on the planning history of, of what is referred to as Steveston, as well as these other histories we've been talking about. Nice. Thank you. Great, great summary of the situation. Uh, my final thought is really to give way to Daphne, to the very compelling final phrases, final lines of the poem. So in a minute, I'm going to I'm going to cue up the, the audio and, and, and play the last couple of lines. But the setup is interesting because that whole stanza is full of the detritus and the crap and the junk, and it's more or less a list. And that list moves through at the end, boats, floats, uh, latest machinery, sonic scan, limbs extended, and then almost as if it's Conrad on the Congo, um, logs and deadheads. You know, there's, there's this... Uh, the the recording, the journalistic machinery of things going up, uh, logs and schedules of machinery and boats going up and down the Fraser. And then there's a comma and everything just becomes incredibly Daphne at the end. It turns toward sometime, it's a word had been used a couple of times previously, sometime creatures of motive that swim and then you get this great ending, which I'm going to play right now. Sometime creatures of motive that swim against the source, but always continuing to return. Always these lovely and perilous bodies, drifting and spawn, swarm on out to sea. I sense almost hope there, certainly in the affect of her voice. She's clearly moved by her own poem. After all these years, she's probably read it at readings, but I think probably she had this great feeling of return, as it were, <laughs> to this issue. And I felt, you know, I got, I had to, I had a chance, thanks largely to Karis, to hang out with her for a few days a year ago plus. And I sensed the emotion of that, that hope of, um, these perilous bodies that have to do what they have to do, and they will get out. They will do what they have to do. Um, well, we like to uh, end Poem Talk with um, Gathering Paradise, uh, which is usually a recommendation. Now, I'm going to throw a curveball at my co-conversants here. Sorry, you're not going to recommend a book or anything like that. I'm going to ask us each to talk about a river or a delta or an estuary or a body of water that means something to us as poets, intellectuals, scholars, humanists. Oh, oh, oh boy. So, I, Jane Robbins, I suppose you could go first because this is all you do with your life. Yeah, um, I mentioned in my bio that I grew up near a river called the Oconee River in um, in Georgia. And I'd say it's important to me as a, as an individual, as a human. Um, and I think one anecdote about the Oconee that's important to me is, um, 
swimming in the Oconee and being told by people that it was too dirty to swim in and as a kid not caring about the dirtiness of the water um, seems to me like Daphne would be a kind of person who would who would also not care about the dirtiness of the water and, and still find it something worth spending time in. So that's my river. It sounds like it's been an inspiration for your career. So it's good, good and fun to go back to your origins, even though in many ways as academics, we like to escape from those origins. <laughs> so, you know, congrats for figuring out a, a, a very humane way of returning to your watery roots. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Davey, uh, your estuary, river, or delta? Sure. So I'm actually going to talk about a meeting point between two bodies of water that was introduced to me by um, everyone's favorite Writer's House staff member, Lily Applebaum, who a couple of years ago uh, took me and my partner to um, North Brigantine State Natural Area, which is a beach um, on the Atlantic Ocean near, near Atlantic City that is a bird sanctuary where... Um, uh, it is in large part a bird sanctuary because plovers uh, nest and hatch there every year and are super amazing. Um, if you are proximate to it, I recommend going in October to hang out with the plovers. And at the, it's a it's three miles of protected beach, uh, and it's usually quite empty uh, because it doesn't offer many of the amenities of sort of stereotypical New Jersey beaches. And at the very end, uh, the Brigantine Channel meets the Atlantic Ocean. And I really feel like every time I'm there, one, I've walked three miles on the beach and gotten to think a lot about beach space. And two, I'm aware of what a super precarious space it is. I think about it as being both such an old space. You can like, you know, from some parts of it, you can like see the Atlantic City casinos and you're aware of like how much older it is, but also what a finite relationship it is to a certain degree of um, ocean level and I wonder, in 30 years, will I be able to visit this place? In 30 years, will this extremely old place exist in a way that's recognizable? And to inhabit a present that is so aware of its past and so anxious about its future, but also just so pleasant. You're at the beach and it's really nice. And it's all of those things at once. And it's a spot in which I think about those uh, collapsed and tense histories uh, in the way that we're asked to uh, in, in Steveson. It's almost as if you knew I was going to ask this question, you people. You're amazing. Karis, as a Canadian person, there's so many options that you have of amazing rivers. I'm dying to know which one you're going to choose. Um, I'm actually not going to choose a river. I am going to choose a lake and uh, put a plot twist in this a little bit. Um, I live near a, an enormous lake called Okanagan Lake. And, uh, and literally, it's a 15-minute walk from my house. And um, it's a lake. When I first moved here, my dad asked me, he was like, how big is it? Because it's pretty big. And I thought, oh, I think it's a couple of kilometers long. I had just arrived. Just... And uh, he was like, after, he's like, you know, I looked on the map and it's actually 100 miles long. Um, it's, it's enormous. And that was just, it was a moment for me as someone moving west for the first time and encountering this landscape. And it's, we're a very desert uh, type of climate. Water is really important to us here. Um, realizing that I didn't know and feeling compelled to then really um, get to know the, the lake, but also its water systems that are connected to um, uh, the, you know, the mountains that are around us and the creeks. Um, and also learn more about how settler colonialism has rerouted some of those uh, creeks and changed the, the waterscape here um, in ways that are being um, now, I think, revised and undone. So it's a lake that for me is kind of a symbol of um, the, the need when one is in a place to learn about the water systems. And I'm 10 years on continuing to do that. Lovely. You've invited me to Okanagan a number of times. I haven't gotten there, but when I get there, can we go to that lake and maybe uh, go for a run about around part of it? We sure can. We sure can. Wow. I have seen that. I've seen that whole area, you know, on maps, and it's fascinating to me. Uh, my river is, well, if, if the sound really picked up uh, what's out just outside uh, here, you would hear the rushing of the flow of a creek called Biscuit Creek. We've had a lot of rain recently. 
and it's whooshing along and it only a couple of hundred yards from here it meets the Neversink River and that's the river my favorite river in the entire world it's the west branch of the Neversink eight miles from here it meets the east branch of the Neversink it flows through the town of Neversink and then it stops at the Neversink Reservoir. There are four reservoirs that collect waters in this watershed in the High Peaks region of the Catskills. Those four reservoirs, the Neversink Reservoir and three others, the water is so clean and so good um, and so relatively unpolluted by farm runoff and through, due to a lot of effort of people not to build along this, these rivers. Uh, and these four reservoirs use an 100 plus year old aqueduct uh, and other piping to go down to New York City. And this is New York City's drinking water. So unlike many other big cities that are really trying to grapple with the source of water, this is a source of water that's from snowmelt and runoff. And it continues because a lot of people are paying attention to it. It happens that the politics of water coincide with good stewardship of this river, this beautiful river. But for me, having grown up in this spot every summer for my entire life since I was seven, the Neversink River is a river that allows me to to dream, to hike alongside it, to see the trout in it, and to just live with it in, uh, you know, in a really exciting and fulfilling way. Well, that's all the creatures of motive that swim we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Jane Robbins-Mize, Davey Niddle, and Karis Shearer, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, how about that? The same amazing Zach Cardner. A shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth White for their very generous support of Poem Talk. This is Al Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us next month for another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>